Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 113 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And this is kind of a bittersweet recording today. We have a little announcement to make. The Cougars are not going away. We are not going away. (laughs) Nothing like that. But it is the end of an era. Indeed. We started recording almost four years ago now. We're almost to our four-year anniversary from my little cottage by the sea on the Long Island Sound in the um, real estate boom that's occurring in Connecticut due to people fleeing New York with COVID-19. My little cottage has sold, so I will be moving next week. Yes. It is bittersweet for me. It's been a wonderful five years living here. I have changed a lot as a person, and part of the change has been this incredible, creative team of the book cougars that I adore. Ditto. It will continue. I've rented a lovely office space, so moving forward... We will probably still be, you know, uh, recording with our computers socially distanced, but eventually we're hoping that this space will become our recording studio. Yeah, we'll have a new uh, Book Cougars recording studio to show you all when when the time is uh, right. That's right. So it's all all good things, but it is somewhat bittersweet just because I've really loved my years here by the sea and have enjoyed sharing it with everybody. New adventures ahead. Yes, absolutely. A lot more fun to be had in the future. Indeed, indeed. Well, I just wanted to um, mention real quick, there's a new readers tool out there in the world. It's in beta right now, uh, StoryGraph. Some listeners may have come across this on social media. A lot of people were sharing it. An article by the uh, in the New Statesman by Sarah Menavis called Why Goodreads is Bad for Books was being shared quite a lot. It was talking about all the problems with Goodreads that I think most of our readers who've been long-term Goodread users have as well. You know, that it is a bit archaic and clunky and search doesn't always work all that well. And that article mentioned the story graph. So this is a new reader's platform that is not going to be really based on ranking by readers. It's going to be more about finding books according to things like mood and pace and topic and theme. They're also developing trigger warnings, various subject matter. So You know, there have been a lot of different reader platforms and apps out there. Some of the better ones have been sucked up by Amazon, which is what happened with Goodreads. There's also Library Thing, which I've been kind of a casual user of for uh, quite a while. And, you know, I think back in the day it was $25 for a lifetime membership. But they're now also partially owned by Amazon. So, um, you know, it's kind of tough if you want to go strictly indie it is a challenge. So the story graph is exciting for a lot of people. You can actually import your Goodreads list if you like. And I signed up and I did import my Goodreads books just to kind of check it out because I always like to see what new book toys have to offer. Right. And I, I also think from reading the article, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think importing your Goodreads list also kind of helps them to build their database a little bit. Yes, it does help them build their database. Initially, I think they were trying to do it themselves manually, but I think that's just such a daunting task. There are 90 million users on Goodreads at this point, which is a lot of people and a lot of books. Some books that I imported, a couple of them did not come through. And most of those were translated books Mm. and obscure titles that may be out of print. So yeah, it is going to be, you know, like any online platform that is free or has a minimal membership fee, part of what you're doing as a user is supplying them with content. Right. So that is the give and take of the internet. Sometimes there's more taking on one side (laughs) or the other. Um, But we just thought we tossed that out there. I have no desire to leave Goodreads at this point because, I mean, I use it mainly to just kind of track what I'm reading, pop things on my to-be-read list that look interesting, and really just to kind of keep up with what friends are reading and have discussions, like on our Book Cougars discussion page. Yeah. 
those are all the reasons I use it as well. Yeah. So, but I'll be I'll be curious to watch you, you know, use the other and, and also just to watch it develop and see what happens. Yeah, so far, I've only looked at I mean, I uh, populated my books from Goodreads, and I've looked at it one time. Uh, I'm curious to see what the recommendations are going to be. I mean, I tend to get recommendations from everywhere. I don't even remember half of the time where a, a book has come from when I end right. up requesting it at the library or whatever. One thing that was funny, though, about this situation was I watched a couple booktubers from the UK talking about this issue, and they pronounced the beta, as we say, beta test, beta. <laughs> They're in beta right now, which I thought was quite charming. They're in beta. <laughs> yes, we can start calling it that. <laughs> yeah. So again, that was uh, the story graph, if you're interested in checking that out. Perfect. We'll put a link in the show notes, as always. So what are you currently reading? Well, I'm currently reading two books. The first one is Pine, P-I-N-E, by Francine Toon, T-O-O-N. And this is a new book. It's not available in the States yet, so you'll have to order it directly from the UK or book depository. It recently won the best mystery novel. It was announced during Bloody Scotland, the conference. And it's more horror at this point in my reading. It's about a, she's 10 or 11 year old girl who is the center of the story. And it involves seeing this woman in white in the forest because this is set in northern scotland in the middle of quote nowhere that she can see this woman and other people do but then they don't remember seeing mm. her so it's really trippy at this point but i'm enjoying it a lot that's so funny because i'm reading the invisible life of Addie larue by v.e schwab i believe it comes out on october 6th i think i'll put it in the show notes for sure and it's about a young woman who made a deal with the devil and she's invisible to people. Interesting. <laughs> so similar. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it goes back and forth in time it, to um, Europe and then to New York City. This woman, the author V.E. Schwab, she's well known for some other series, like um, kind of sci-fi magic series, I think. Mm -hmm. But this is her first novel that they're and they're calling it genre defying okay. tour de force. When I first read that, I thought it was gender, <laughs> um, but it's genre defying. And they're comparing it to The Time Traveler's Wife and Life After Life. Oh, Which are both books that kind of go back and forth in time and jump around and things like that. But apparently, she finally meets a young man in a bookstore, and he can remember her and see her. So I kind of like that. So I'm only 100 pages in, so more to come. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds really cool. Yeah. You know what that she has an event, the author has an event at the Center for Fiction. Mm -hmm. I saw when I was looking through their events. Yeah, I guess she's one of those like her events sell out immediately and all of her events are ticketed and include the book. Um, I'll put a link to her website that has the list of the events. As I said, I know the book doesn't come out until sometime in October. So perhaps um, people can still get tickets for them. Cool. Well, the other book I'm reading is called it's a nonfiction memoir, We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth by Jennifer Risher, Reicher. I believe the book is out already. I am reading it on my, my uh, e-reader. And she's talking about wealth. She's somebody who grew up middle class with a family that saved their pennies. And she is a young person working in Seattle in the 90s and gets a job at Microsoft and gets stock options, as you did back then, uh, with different companies. She, before she knows it, has several hundred thousand dollars to her name. And she starts feeling really uncomfortable about money. And she doesn't really tell her parents about it because she doesn't want the relationship to change. She marries a man who is also working at Microsoft, who has even more stock options. And then he leaves Microsoft and goes to Amazon in its early days. And before they know it, they have something like over $40 million to their name. And they're just in their young, they're in their 30s at this point. It's an interesting memoir so far. I'm, I'm over halfway done. I think I'm at like 60% at 
at this point, according to my e-reader. And, you know, she's talking about how money really changes your identity and your sense of purpose and your place in the world, you know, with your family and friends. She's just had her second kid is the point where I am right now. So I'll definitely talk more about this book on the next episode when I finish it. Yeah, it's so interesting. I know that a lot of the trouble people have when they get great wealth is not so much. I mean, it can be how do you handle that? And what do you do with your money? But it can also be the change in all your relationships and the expectations that the people around you have of Mm -hmm. helping them or paying for their lives or whatever. And it can become very stressful. And then also, how do you raise your children? When you were someone who was raised with a moral compass that maybe didn't involve tremendous wealth, how do you figure that out for raising your kids? So that's Yeah, that's something that she talks about is, you know, fearing that her children are going to grow up to be spoiled right. and not have the urge to do things in the world. Um, and she talked with a lot of people who found themselves to be wealthy, uh, oh. either through something like, you know, the dot-com boom or another type of, Uh, business or through inheritance. So this is not a book about people who have come from wealthy families, but people who find themselves newly wealthy. And her main fear initially was that people were going to hate her Mm -hmm. because there is so much hatred towards wealthy people. And, you know, our media has this fascination with either glorifying wealth or demonizing people who are wealthy And it is kind of interesting uh, that so many people who are wealthy or or just the attitudes towards people who are wealthy, it's completely judgmental towards Mm -hmm. them. And it's just going to be an interesting book to finish and think about. At the end of each chapter, there are discussion questions and questions for reflection. Well, it'll be interesting to hear what you think when you're done. Yeah. So again, that was We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth by Jennifer Risher. I'm also reading All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taves. Thank you to our listener, Melissa, who corrected me on the pronunciation. Her name is spelled T-O-W-E-S, but it's actually pronounced Taves with a V. Interesting. So thank you, Melissa. Miriam is a revered author in Canada and has won all manner of awards, including for this book. And I've been reading it, but it's very dark. It's semi-autobiographical. It is a work of fiction, but it's about two sisters who were raised in the Mennonite faith, as Miss Taves was, but one of the sisters commits suicide. And so this book is following the sister, the point that I'm at right now, she's in a like a mental health ward because she's c- tried to commit suicide once again. And she's a concert pianist. So it's going back and forth in time of their childhood as she's this sister is kind of a rebel in particularly in the Mennonite community and, you know, becomes this artist, a very successful artist, but is very um, emotionally fraught. So I was reading it and, you know, as I'm packing to move and everything, I was just like, this is just too depressing. I can't do it. I need things that are making me happy right now. Mm -hmm. So when the invisible life of Adi LaRue arrived, I was like, you know, step into another world. That's probably a good idea. And so I've kind of been picking up all my puny sorrows every once in a while and just reading a chapter. It's very short chapters. But then the other weird thing about it is I got it through the library and it it wasn't available as a Kindle, so I couldn't put it on my e-reader and I've been reading it with the OverDrive app, Mm -hmm. which I've never done before. So I'm reading it, but it's just kind of slightly different the whole way that it works. So it's a very dark, very heavy book, but her writing is quite beautiful. So I can see why it won awards. So I will pick it back up. Or continue to read it a little bit at a time while I'm reading this kind of sci-fi book as well. Yeah, that's, you know, I'm, I've been still listening to Cast here and mm-hmm. there, Wilkerson's new book, but, you know, it's tough. So yeah. I've been kind of stepping back a little bit from it. Which I often do, you know, I'm often reading a nonfiction and a fiction, but to be reading two fiction works of fiction is unusual for me. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm trying it. You know, because they're so different. I feel like it'll work. So what have you just read? I finished Magic Lessons by Alice Hoffman. Great. How was it? 
Oh, this book is out October 6th. I loved it. I mean, people who are longtime listeners know Alice Hoffman is one of my favorite authors of all time. This is actually a prequel to um, her series, Practical Magic and Rules of Magic. And it talks about the matriarch of the Owens family. And the Owens women are the women that are portrayed in, in these three novels. And Maria Owens, there's a, she put a curse on the Owens women that any man that loves an Owens woman will die. So it's been a problematic situation in the world of love for them. (laughs) And this book kind of explains the, where the curse, why it arose, you know, what was happening in Maria's life. And it arose as she was being hung for being accused of being a witch back in the day when they did that kind of stuff to to women. And so I wanted to read one quote, because one of the things I love about Alice Hoffman is literally just the way the style of her writing. And also she, I noticed when I was reading this book that she revisits the history of the book. In other words, like something that she talked about three chapters in, she'll drop a sentence or two about that character that puts you back and helps you remember who they are, which to me is such a gift as a reader. Yes. Because yes. I am so constantly confused by characters and names and all of that. So it was something I really noticed in this particular novel. So this says, love begins in curious ways, in daylight or in darkness, when you are in search of it or when you least expect to find it. You may think it is one thing when in fact it is something else entirely infatuation, loneliness, seduction. Mm. So this book uh, really talks a lot about love and about the curse that the Owens women have been under, but also about witchcraft. As you so eloquently said in the last episode, we are witch positive here. (laughs) And it, you know, historically women were healers and still are healers. And, you know, they, they, people would seek them out for what they could offer help with, particularly in the world of midwifery and things like that, and use herbs and poultices and things like that, which is what the Owens women do. So she has, a, there's a lot of herbalism and plants and flowers and stuff in this book, which is the kind of old school Alice Hoffman that I love. Cool. But then it also brings in the whole puritanical aspect of New England, you know, where we live, and how men were very threatened by women, and maybe still are. Well, goes back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. And the whole idea of a healer versus a witch, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, one of the other quotes I wanted to read It was a dangerous world for women and more dangerous for a woman whose very bloodline would have her do not as she was ordered, but as she pleased. So I loved it. I highly recommend it. I'm very curious. I am attending an event in October. And I think I mentioned this on the last episode, whether she would recommend that people read the prequel now that it's available or read, you know, Practical Magic, Rules of Magic, and then the prequel. Mm -hmm. So cool. If I hear more about that, I will report back. Please do. Again, it's called Magic Lessons by Alice Hoffman. I haven't read her yet, and that might be a a way in for me Mm -hmm. with these three. So I look forward to hearing what you find out. Okay. So I finished The The Marrow Thieves by Sherry Dimmeline, which I was reading last time. This is her YA novel that was such a huge hit on the bestseller list for over 100 weeks in Canada and I loved it. I thought it was such an inventive story. I don't read a lot of apocalyptic type um, eco-disaster type novels at all and this one has that but it was definitely focused more on the characters and I really enjoyed the characters. Dimmeline, like you were just talking, um, you know, she made the characters very individual. So you you knew who they were when they came back or when you're reading along. I've read novels before and it's just like, what, who the fuck is that? Like, wait, yes. what, you know, you have to go back. And so no, nothing like that here. It is about a young guy named Frenchie, who's a teenager, and he has lost his parents, his brother, 
And he does eventually find a small group of people to travel with. They're in North America. The country government structure, everything has pretty much been destroyed. So there are these bands of people, in their case, all Native Americans from different nations, traveling together to try to make it further north to get away from uh, the primarily white people who are hunting them for their marrow. Because, as I, I think I mentioned last episode, but I'll say it again, the marrow thieves, the Native Americans have been able to keep hold of their dreams and they still dream. And most of the white people can no longer dream. And so they're hunting them for their marrow, which is horrific. And this young guy, Frenchie, so I'll just read this one paragraph, just give the listeners a sense of it. He says, I was nicknamed Frenchie as much as for my name as for my people, the Métis. I come from a long line of hunters, trappers, and voyagers. But now, with most of the rivers cut into pieces and lakes left as gray sludge puckers on the landscape, my own history seemed like a myth along the lines of dragons. Compared to shy boys six plus feet, I wasn't the tallest, but I did have the longest hair of any of the boys, almost to my waist, burnt ombre at the untrimmed edges. I braided it myself each morning to keep it out of the way and to remind myself of things I couldn't quite remember, but that nevertheless I knew to be true. Mm. So one of the things that the the group does is they, uh, the elder of the group tells stories to the young people who are old enough. The youngest are not allowed to hear certain stories about the reality of what's going on. Um, but they all get together and they share what they remember to try and create, you know, more stories to have more dreams and things like that. So it's, it's a tough read. I mean, she, she does some things that I didn't expect to happen. And, um, you know, this part about his hair, you know, part of it is like, what makes you a good person or what makes him a good Indian? You know, he does think at one point, like I have long hair and that that makes him a good Indian in a way. And then towards the end, something happens. And this is a spoiler. He ends up cutting his hair as a sign of mourning, mm. which is also a Native American tradition in, in some nations. So it, just a fascinating read. I enjoy her storytelling skills so much. As I said before, I loved her book, uh, The Empire of Wild, which is an adult novel. So uh, Sherry Dimeline is definitely an author on my on my radar to to keep out uh, watch for her next book. I'm definitely going to get that for my daughter for the holidays. I think she'll love it. Yeah, I have it from the library, and I do have to return it. It's overdue. Uh oh, <laughs> you're going to make someone happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I finished the first to lie by Hank Philippi Ryan, and she's going to be um, a guest on the Cougars in October. So we're going to have more opportunity to talk with her. I have questions. (laughs) She is a a newscaster in real life or a a journalist, I should say. I'm not sure. I think she's actually on television. She is. She's an investigative journalist uh, on TV news, news investigator. Yeah. Yeah. And you can really tell as you're reading this book because one of the characters is a journalist and it's a very plot driven. It's a thriller. There's suspense. And what she's really doing with the book is taking on the pharmaceutical industry. Mm. There's a, um, as often happens, there's a drug that is, um, you know, tested and created and invented to cure some, or not, I shouldn't say cure, help with an illness. But then as often happens, they find out that it can help with something else that Mm. they least expected. I know that's what happened with Viagra, for example, (laughs) you know, like, oh, who knew? So um, this particular drug can help women who are experiencing infertility to be helped to become pregnant or to not be able to ever have children. Oh, God. That can be a side effect. Oh, wow. (laughs) So as you might imagine, that's a little problematic. Mm -hmm. But what she really takes to task in this book, and I believe this to be true, I mean, I'm interested to ask her this question, is that... What pharmaceutical 
companies will do is decide what's the risk reward, right? Mm -hmm. What's the percentage of people who will have success and be able to have a baby? And what's the percentage that will never be able to have children? And if it's palatable to them, they'll put the, the drug out on the market. That's kind of the premise of the story. But then there's all sorts of characters that are not who you think they are. She That's the other real theme of this book, which really touches a sore spot for me because I, that's one of my things is that people aren't always who they say they are, you know, and I believe we never truly know people. We all have parts to ourselves that are mysterious and always will be. But she really takes this to a very high level with people, you know, not literally being multiple people. And that's all I'm going to say. No, no spoilers. But I really enjoyed it. And one of the things there's a line where she says refers to journalists as storytellers of truth. And so I'm really interested to know what it's like for her to be a storyteller of truth, but then also spin some of those truths into fiction, right? Mm hmm which is what she does as when she's wearing her author hat. So that's that's going to be one of my first questions for her. But I really enjoyed it. She also, this is a standalone novel. She has some series as well. But this is my first um, book that I've read of hers. Again, it's called The First to Lie by Hank Philippi Ryan. Cool. I look forward to checking it out. I have read one of her books, uh, the first in one of her series that featured a woman who was an investigative reporter. And I enjoyed it. Because she was one of the first authors I met. I don't even know if I, I didn't necessarily meet her at this event, but one of the first authors I saw when I moved to Connecticut, we moved in December. And in February, there was a big event at the Mohegan Sun. And she was one of the, the authors there. Yeah, because she's a New Englander. I think she's maybe lives in Boston. Yeah, she's in Boston. Yeah. So she's, she might, you know, listeners may not have heard from her if they're in other parts of the country, but she is huge in New England, for sure. She, she's at a lot of the conferences and events. And um, she's, you know, won tons of Emmys for her news work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'll be really fun to talk to her, I'm sure. I mean, it's always nerve wracking to interview someone who interviews people for a living, but we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next book I read was Bury My Heart at Chuck E. Cheese's. By Tiffany Midge. <laughs> I love that title. title. Isn't that a title? Um, yeah. It's from the University of Nebraska Press, and I get their emails. And when I saw that title, I was like, oh, okay, I have to order that book. So Tiffany Midge is Native American woman. She is of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. And this book, it's a collection of short essays and snippets, some that have been published elsewhere. And I it's satire which I didn't realize that the you know when I saw the title and I read the blurbs like it was you know everybody talked about how funny and humorous it was but it's just not my brand of humor it's satire and as I said in my really brief Goodreads review I you know I didn't like Confederacy of Dunces or Catch-22 or Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court like I just don't find that humorous i find it enraging quite often about things i already am enraged about so right. reading about them doesn't give me much pleasure um because the uh the writing in in midge's book it's everything from personal writing about like say her mom to political writing about donald trump so not my cup of tea somebody else may really love it if you like satire definitely check it out she got some blurbs from some, you know, really big writers who follow her writings. Again, that was Bury My Heart at Chuck E. Cheese's by Tiffany Midge. Very good. We don't always enjoy everything we read. Yeah. I know it's true, you know, but I was really fascinated to, to um, you know, because I hadn't heard of her and, and she's apparently really well known in certain circles. So it was... Uh, good to discover her writing and familiarize myself with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what about Biblio adventures? I had a couple different things. I, I had a good old fashioned couch Biblio adventure watching a movie. I finally watched the booksellers 
that documentary that came out last year about antiquarian booksellers. Oh, cool. Remember that one? Yeah, it had, uh, the premiere was in New York City, and Aunt Ellen went, I don't remember now, we talked about going, and I think the day that we were talking about it, I, I couldn't make it, and it was sold out anyway, so I think she went another night. Anyway, I did finally watch it. It was available to stream on, oh gosh, what is that? Canopy? Yeah, Canopy. So it was available through Canopy, which is classic documentaries, indie films, that is uh, a service that is available through libraries. And we get it through our Guilford library, and I've signed up for their emails. So I get a weekly email that comes out, I think maybe like on Thursday or Friday, that says, you know, what to watch this weekend. And they, they always have really fascinating things and stuff you don't hear about because you know it's indie stuff and documentaries and i know movie advertisements are kind of different in this time of covid but i really enjoyed this because you know i'm really i'm into antiquarian books and the opening scene and, and scenes throughout were at the new york antiquarian book fair which i've gone to in the past and really enjoyed but i, I kind of had to laugh because they must have filmed it on the preview night or when it was closed and they just had, you know, friends and family there because you see these people walking along aisles with all this room between their bodies walking. And when you're there, like on the Saturday, it is packed. And oh, really? you really have to kind of like elbow your way in and maybe do a couple laps before you can get into a booth you want to see because there's so many people in there. It's a, it's a great event. I'm really bum that it probably will be digital this mm -hmm. coming year it's always in march it's always around my birthday so that's kind of a birthday treat too to go into the city and and visit that but so this movie focuses on a couple different antiquarian booksellers in new york city uh, bookstores and individual booksellers i just loved it lots of great shots of old books um, talking about how the internet changed the book industry, especially the antiquarian book industry, which as they say, you know, it killed the hunt, mm. you know, and there are, there are old books that I keep my eye out for some of them, not all that old. They could just be 10, 20 years old that I just refuse to buy them online. Cause I want to find them. Yeah. In yeah. A, you in want a the thrill of it. Right. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. and whenever that will happen again, I, I look forward to getting back. But one of the things is it said, uh, Antiquarian booksellers are part scholar, part detective, part business person, and their personalities and knowledge are as broad as the material they handle, which is quite true. And it's a, an enjoyable movie. That's fun. I, I would imagine, too, the other thing the Internet did was it kind of um, creates a situation where it affects the price of things, you know, because they can kind of look for the highest bidder and all of that kind of stuff, you yeah. know. It so. does. And if you find a, a cache of different titles that are out of print, you can make a lot of money selling those books. Hmm. Yeah. And but then once it's republished or other people start seeing that, the price can go down pretty quickly, hmm. yeah. which is really fun and aggravating. And some things are just ridiculous. Like if you ever happen to look on Amazon I used to look at Abe books a lot, but they've also been purchased by Amazon. So yeah. it's a different thing. But if you look at some books, you'll find just ridiculous prices because mm -hmm. people are hoping to, to get these prices for these books, which are not right. always what the real quote value is. Yeah. Yeah. It's true in all manner of antique worlds but you yeah know. right with fountain pens too because i'm also yeah. into fountain pens and yeah i was uh there's a pen company goulet pens brian goulet is owner of that with his wife and i have this one lammy pen which is i think i bought it for like 20 euros in germany and they no longer make that nib for for their line and they also don't make the pen in that same color combination. So I found it online for like $800. And wow. Brian and I exchanged emails and he's just like, yeah, he's like, it's, you know, probably wishful thinking on somebody's right. part. You know, not that I would ever <laughs> sell mine because I love it so much, 
but yeah, the the internet's a it's still kind of the wild west in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I happened upon a in virtual event, also a couch biblio adventure, as most of ours are these days, with Skylark Bookshop, which is in Columbia, Missouri. And it was with Christina Baker Klein, who's the author. Her new book is The Exiles. A lot of people might know about her from The Orphan Train. Um, and she was interviewed by Alex George, who's the owner of Skylark Books. He's also the founder of the Unbound Book Festival. Hmm. which I guess is really popular. And he also is an author. And his most recent book is called The Paris Hours. And he also wrote a book called Setting Free the Kites. He's from the UK and he's a lawyer. Very fascinating man. And one of the things that Christina Baker Klein did that I thought was really sweet was all, I guess, all of her book events are in conversation. And so behind her, she had this really cool book holder kind of like a bookshelf but it made the books almost look like they were floating behind her Mm -hmm. straight up and down you know and it had the books of all of her companion writers that were going to be in conversation with her that's cool it was so cool and as they were talking you know she was very generously talking about his most recent book also the Paris Hours and really she's a teacher so you can tell also that you know, she really wants it to be an interesting conversation. And the book sounds fascinating. I mean, it's kind of um, an epic, almost adventure story where um, people are fleeing across from Europe, I think, to Australia on a ship. And one of the women is pregnant and she befriends another woman who's a midwife. And then they, you know, because she's going to have this baby on board the ship, I guess, and they land in Australia. And then I know it has something to do with the Aboriginal people of Australia, but that's as much as I know about the book, but I would like to read it. I know she's incredibly strong on the research end. So her books are very well, you know, researched and thought out and written. Again, her book is called The Exiles, and it is available now. And she's on a huge tour if anybody wants to look her up and try to catch her. Very cool. So I attended an event at the Center for Fiction, well, online, of course, with Maria Devana Headley, Emily Wilson, and Madeline Miller. Like, what a great lineup. Uh, this hour they were in conversation about um, Maria's new translation of Beowulf which is of course one of the foundational texts of western literary tradition it was written in old English which is earlier than Chaucer it's a foreign language practically this translation of Beowulf it's the first one at least published by a contemporary woman so she really tries to give it a contemporary vibe so people can relate to it more. So she does use a word like bro, mm-hmm. you know, which is really fascinating. And her introduction to the book is fantastic. I usually don't read introductions until I've read the book. Since I've read Beowulf before, I felt comfortable reading it. And when it comes to translation, it usually is a different kind of introduction because they talk about translation issues. So that was a really good introduction. I, I am currently reading it as well. But their conversation was fantastic because Maria Headley is a very popular writer of fantasy novels in sci- sci-fi. Emily Wilson translated The Odyssey. I know we've talked about that book on the past. And then Madeline Miller has written novels, you know, Circe, And then, oh my gosh, I'm spacing out on... Song of Achilles. Right, Song of Achilles, you know, which are, you know, about the ancient Greeks. So the three of these women, so smart, so funny, and just so in love with the texts that they're working with, but wanting to make them accessible to modern readers. It was just such a joy of uh, an event to watch. I did miss the first 10 minutes because I was late getting home for it but you know they talked a lot about the other translations especially about Grendel's mother 
who has always been portrayed as a hag. Um, hell bride is another word that was used to translate her. And it's really not supported in the text to slant her that way. And as Maria says, it's a long line of failure, the translations of the past, um, and just mistranslating her. And as one of them said, you know, if you kind of consider women hags, <laughs> In your own life, that's how you're going to translate. Or if you or if you felt that way about your own mother, perhaps. Well, right, exactly. They talked again about how men, male translators, have laid their own prejudices on characters. Mm -hmm. The whole myth of objectivity is another, mm -hmm. you know, that could be a whole podcast episode in itself. One thing that was fascinating that came out of the conversation is just how many monsters have been created in Western literature for men to prove their manhood in patriarchal culture. And it's something I never thought about before. Mm. So that was really fascinating. And I don't know if this was an event that is available now to watch, because I thought I would gladly rewatch it. And just other things, be, you know, other than Beowulf, um, Emily Wilson is now translating the Aeneid or Aeneid. Mm-hmm. And that was, it's about the war and Helen and, you know, the face that launched a thousand ships. And one thing that she said that was really fascinating is in the original texts or, you know, pieces of the earliest texts, she said that there's no, they don't talk much. The authors, the writers don't talk much about how Helen looks at all. Hmm. That that hmm. is a later layer added to it. Wow. They're yeah. smart. Uh, they're, they're so smart and it's so fascinating because Beowulf, like one of the things Maria talked about is that the you can see the earliest surviving manuscripts of Beowulf and some of them, she said, like there's more writing from different translators and interpreters than th that was in the earliest hand on the page wow. because people have laid so much of their their own things on it. Great event. I love all three of those women. Just so smart and so funny. And um, it was a great event. And if you were interested in Beowulf, Maria's translation is very readable. It's still epic poetry. So you do have to kind of let yourself get into it. Mm -hmm. You know, let yourself yeah. kind of just go with it in the beginning. Yeah, so. yeah. Very cool. I'm so glad that you got to see that. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Well, we had a joint jaunt, right? We attended an event together. We did. Schomburg Center. That was Audrey Lord Radical Care and Political Warfare was the title of the event. And it was featuring Roxanne Gay, Mahogany L. Brown, Tracy K. Smith, and Salamisha Tillett, who was kind of like the moderator uh, talking about Audre Lorde's writing. And because each of the three of the women, Roxanne, Mahogany, and Tracy, all have different books coming out or recently out um, about Lorde's writing or, you know, new collections. Like I think Roxanne Gay's is a new selected writings of Audre Lorde. Right. Where she um, edited and wrote the introduction, I think. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the format of it was that they allowed each of the three women to read some of Lord's work, and then they commented on it. And I really appreciated that. I mean, I'm not familiar with her work. Um, and so it was really, even though I'm usually the person that's like, don't read, don't read. But it was really interesting because they chose both her poetry and her essay. And they didn't read for a long period of time. I mean, they each wrote, you know, chose something to read about and then um, talked about it a little bit. And then they had more of an open conversation with questions. And one of the statements that really struck me, and I couldn't remember w which one of the women said it, but that Lord saw difference as a source of strength. Right. I just love that line, you know? Yes. And that is something, you know, because with the, the feminist movement in like, you know, the 70s, trying to ignore difference, it mm -hmm. just doesn't work because women have so many differences. So that, yeah, that's, you know, it's empowering, I think, to to look at the differences as something that can give us strength, give women yeah. strength, yeah. as opposed to something to not talk about. And also prevents some of the judgment that occurs. 
you know, Mm -hmm. if we can really just honor that difference is to be celebrated. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and something that we could all learn from. So did you enjoy the event? I love the event. You know, I mentioned before in past episodes, I was familiar with Lord's work. And I one of the things somebody mentioned her book, Zami, a new spelling of my name. And yes, it's Audrey Lord. I was just like, duh, I read about her changing the Y from Audrey to an E to match the E of her last name. So that was one of those things like, well, maybe I've forgotten more than I know right now. Who knows? But I enjoyed the event very much. And I like the conversation about the Mm self-care. That self-care is so important. And, you know, especially in this age of activism and protest that, you know, people are getting burnt out again. And you Mm -hmm. can't let, you know, you want to not let that happen because you want to enjoy your life at the same time you're protesting things and advocating for change. Mm -hmm. And that if you don't have, you don't practice self-care, you're just going to burn out and then you'll be no help to anyone. And didn't that conversation start with Roxanne Gay saying that that was a question that someone had posed to her at an event? Yes. She said that the younger generation at events are asking her, how do you practice self-care? And like the first couple times it came up, she was like, what? Like, yeah, she was completely stymied by the question. Like, what are you even talking about? Yeah, exactly. And and she said that is something that the younger generations are much more in touch with. Um, Just like, you know, Audre Lorde was one of the first women writers, women feminists to really tap into anger and to use anger as a tool you know, because women historically have been told, don't be angry. It's it's not feminine. Right. It's not attractive. Right. But balancing the anger with the self-care was hence the title of the event, you know, radical care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, that was interesting to hear uh, Roxane Gay talk about that, that at first she didn't know what these the younger folks were talking about. And now it is something that she's much more aware of. Yeah. In her own life. Yeah. You know, she's somebody who's everywhere. I mean, she does so many events and she does so much for women and literature and African-Americans that I I don't know when the woman rests, it seems like. But she obviously yeah. does. She had time to get married. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and she cooks a lot. If you follow her on social media, I'm like, oh, I want to eat at your house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So do you have any upcoming jaunts on the books? Well, I had another event before we move on, if we don't. Yeah, Yeah, um, I was able to catch Sean Cosby, who wrote Blacktop Wasteland, that mystery that I loved so much earlier this year. He did an event with the New York Society Library, which is really great. Um, Mm -hmm. It was my first time seeing him speak, and I really wanted to see him in action because I just love discovering new writers and hearing them talk about their work. He was really funny and he he read from his book, which was cool to hear because, you know, he did the different, uh, the different character speech patterns Mm -hmm. and inflections and stuff like that. So that was really cool because that opening scene of Blacktop Wasteland is at an illegal drag race. So <laughs> um, so that was great. He's really amazed at the success of this novel. And, you know, he said he's like some of the people who, some of the writers who he considered gods, you know, have said good things about his book. And he, it just blows his mind. Um, but he's definitely a very smart, articulate man, extremely well read. They did have an opportunity for watchers to ask questions you know in the chat and I had just said how much I love the book and how riveted I was to the page during his chase scenes that he wrote about and I'm not that into cars but I just wanted to ask him like you know how did he write those slash research you know those scenes and he laughed and uh, said well in my misspent youth I used to drive really fast (laughs) And he said, for example, one day I got two speeding tickets in one day. He's like, and that's all I'll say about that. So, (laughs) and then somebody asked him, because, you know, the the book is 
a lot a car is central to the the book itself um Bo's is the main character it's his dad's car his old muscle car and his dad's no longer in his life so this car means so much but it's uh he's also a mechanic and so muscle cars are huge in this book and somebody asked him so what do you drive now Mm, that's a great question yeah and he's like i drive a dad suburban you know suv type thing he's like nothing (laughs) exciting it's uh, you know it's a dad car so (laughs) i was trying to think see i love cars i was trying to think what would be like what what would what would i think he drives you know if i asked him that question but that's funny so he must he has kids obviously that does change your choices for yeah. vehicles. Well, and I guess um, the character Bo was in part uh, based on his cousin who was older than him. And the guy was a mechanical genius, he said, and used to take Sean to these illegal drag races when he was a kid. Oh. And he said it was really amazing because he's like it was the, he really just tasted freedom at these events and he's like you know it's also the whole american love affair with cars Mm -hmm. you know he's like is there a better feeling than getting into your car with a full tank of gas and just hitting the road like we love that feeling as americans you know yeah so great event i'm so happy thanks to the new york society library for making that event available to the public and inviting sean to come and talk about his book and again, that's Blacktop Wasteland. Highly recommend it. Yeah, it's available now. And yep. He's on tour. And it yes. has, I think, been incredibly successful. So upcoming, Johns, I have one I'm really excited about. It's um, via the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, which is related to the Dayton International Peace Museum. And Dayton is my old stomping grounds. So this Peace Prize began in 2006, and I was an annual attendee of the event. I loved it. And I used to run into Linda there, our buddy Linda, because she lived just up the street from me. And our buddy Minjin Lee was a runner-up. Pachinko was a runner-up, I believe, in 2018, right? That's when it came out. And she is hosting an event through the Dayton Literary Peace Prize on October 1st. It's titled The American Dream, Whose Myth, Whose Reality?, It's from 7 to 8.30 Eastern Time. She'll be in conversation with Viet Thanh Nguyen, who's the author most recently of The Sympathizer. Mm. I cannot wait to hear them talk about this. I'm really excited. It's through Eventbrite. It's free. You just have to sign up for it and register. So I'll put the link in the show notes. Great. Yeah. Nice. I saw an event with her. It wasn't a literary event per se. Um, but it was with Asian Americans Against Trump, which mm. is an organization that's raising money to place ads in magazines and newspapers around the country that are in Asian languages for Asian Americans who are voter eligible, but may be more comfortable in their native language. So it was cool to see her. She there was a lot of there was politicians and other and actors and um, in conversation. It's really neat to see her platform, you know, like that she's doing events like that. I love that. Yeah, it's a great organization and it's all volunteer run. So -hmm. if you do contribute to it, you could know that your dollars are definitely going to the intended effort to raise money for those ads. Right. That's a that's a really smart move. I love it. Yeah. So um, I have an upcoming event too. this one. Actually, I have to say it's going to be on the 28th, which is the day before this episode airs. So I'll have to tweet about it. It's through the Beinecke Library here in New Haven, Partiel. They have a Mondays at the Beinecke event that they always do during the school term. And now, since everything is different in the world, they're putting these online and they are free and open to everyone. They're inviting people to come and attend. This first one for the new semester is about Langston Hughes, his work, The Ballot and Me, which was about African-Americans and voting. This is in the 50s. So these events are on Mondays at 4 p.m., 
The next one after that is October 5th at 4 p.m., and it will be about Dorothy Porter Wesley, who was an African-American librarian, archivist, um, and just really influential in the field of African-American studies. She was also the first African-American librarian to get a degree from Columbia University, I believe, library mm. science degree. And they mm. hold her papers there. So this is going to be a really interesting conversation about somebody who I'm not sure if there's a biography written on her yet. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's, I think I saw on social media, I can't remember if it was probably was Twitter that they, they posted some pictures of what it's like for them to do virtual events because it's all images, right? So it was like this camera with all of these <laughs> you know, things laid out and they're moving the camera from place to place. And I just thought, wow, that is not trivial to put that together, you know, so pretty cool. Totally. Yeah. And they do, they have their, some of the events on YouTube too. So you could check out their channel. We'll, I'll ask Emily to put that in show notes. Yeah. Thank you. I'll definitely dig that up. The other thing I wanted to point out to people is the Charleston to Charleston festival that I attended in person last year and was amazing is going virtual this year it's a literary festival it's supposed to be november 6th through the 15th i believe they have kind of different sets of dates posted around (laughs) and the schedule hasn't been released yet so i imagine once october comes it will be so i'll just keep checking back on that and add a link in the show notes and i'll talk about it on a future episode obviously but i just wanted to alert people to that i mean it was such a great list of authors and the conversations were so interesting that I'm hopeful they'll be able to somehow recreate that. I mean, nothing is the same virtually, of course, but it could give you an opportunity to attend something far away without having to travel. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, talking about shout outs to different things, our buddy John Valeri has been doing, he started a new YouTube channel. I know we've mentioned it in the past, called Central Booking. His latest guest is Heather Harper Ellett. And her book that we both love so much, Ain't Nobody Nobody, is now available in paperback. So that's a book both Emily and I loved. They do a lovely shout out to the book Cougars in the beginning. So, oh, nice. Of that I, it's funny when you called me, I was watching it. Oh, were you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'll link to his YouTube channel. He has interviewed some really interesting people, yes. including... The Book Cougars really recommend that you um, watch him. I mean, it's so interesting because John is he's a writer himself and a book reviewer, and he does a really lovely job of introducing the authors and, you know, the folks that he's interviewing and asks really thought provoking questions. I mean, it was stressful. I felt (laughs) like when we were on it to be, you know, for the tables to be turned and he asked some really you know, interesting questions that really made me, you know, my knees knock together. I have to think. <laughs> yes, it is really different to be on the other side, isn't it? it totally. Yeah. Yes. What about upcoming reads? What's on um, your next list? I have two that I'm so excited about. One of them is called The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Disha Filia. And this is um, in the National Book Award long list. And it's a group of short stories. So it's a short story collection all about um, the South, African-American women in the South. And I heard Russell talk about this on his YouTube channel, Ink and Paper blog. And he said one of the short stories is all about Peach Cobbler, which was all I needed to hear. Oh, my God. I love Peach Cobbler. And he wanted Peach Cobbler so badly after that. You know, cobbler is a very specific kind of food and people get it confused. What it really is, is like, I mean, for lack of a better word, pie filling kind of like, you know, so baked peaches or baked apples and then more of a biscuit dough that goes on top, like a sweetened biscuit dough. But Jim and I went to a restaurant in New England. We are in New England and they said they had apple cobbler as their dessert. I got so excited And Jim was like, I hate cobbler. It's all that like sugary streusel stuff on the top. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. That's a crisp. (laughs) 
this is what a cobbler is. I describe a cobbler to him. And then don't you know, it was an apple crisp. Oh, yeah. Table. <laughs> so I was so bummed. And he was kind of like, mm-hmm. like, he didn't really believe me that uh, that's what a is, so. I My sister-in-law, Tracy, makes the best peach cobbler and we, oh. she'd make it every year when we had our family vacation on the Otter Banks with, mm. you know, freshly picked North Carolina peaches. Oh, my mm. God. It was like the highlight of our week together. Yeah, for cobbler. sure. Ugh. I am just yeah. salivating thinking about it. I, I don't know if I can keep talking. <laughs> we have to go. We have to go find some cobbler. Good luck around here. <laughs> yeah. What's the only thing you don't like about New England? There's no cobbler. <laughs> um, okay, I have to ask, did you guys eat it just straight as cobbler or did you have it with ice cream or whipped cream? Ice cream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Ice cream people would, uh, vanilla ice cream was oh, yeah. the standard for the family, I believe. So, but our tradition was, um, you know, we all would be doing our own things during the day, sometimes stuff together, but we'd always have dinner together. Mm-hmm. And so we'd have dinner and then we'd go on a long beach walk and then we'd come back and have cobbler for dessert. Oh, so yummy. I want to be part of that family. I miss (laughs) those vacations. It was a lovely tradition. And then the other book I have um, lined up is A Girl is a Body of Water by Jennifer McCumby, who is a native um, writer. And this is supposed to they're selling it as a feminist epic which got my attention. And the protagonist is a 13 year old girl. So I'm really interested in this one. That's all I know about it. So more to come after I dig in. All right. Well, I have one here that I'm going to be looking at just came in recently. It's Southern cross crime, the pocket essential guide to crime fiction, film and TV of Australia and New Zealand. It's by Craig Sisterson. Hold that up for you. The cover is kind of cool. It has a, it's like, you know, a a road in the boonies with a caution sign with a kangaroo on it that has bullet holes in it. Right. Which (laughs) kind of standard for uh, being out in the boonies. I'm looking forward to this. I saw this, uh, I saw a lot of uh, people who are into Australian mystery tweeting about this and I had to get a copy. So I'm looking forward to reading about some of my favorite writers and then discovering lots of new ones. Yeah. And then the other book I'm going to be starting very soon. And just a reminder to everyone is our next read along celestial bodies. And I wanted to get a bit of a head start on this one. I know our conversation isn't until early November, but I wanted to get going on it sooner just to talk about it on Goodreads. Mm-hmm. a bit more yeah yeah that's a good idea mm-hmm. yeah and it's we're going to be talking about it on episode 116 which will air on november 10th and so if you want to get on the goodreads page is open now please feel free to get on and start chatting about it and then we also do have a zoom conversation read-along conversation if you're interested in joining we have a few more spots left and that'll be on sunday november first at 7 p.m. Eastern time, send us an email, bookcougars at gmail.com if you'd like to join the read-along. Great. uh, Celestial Bodies by Joka Alharthi. Did I say her name correctly? I think it's uh, like a hard T, Alharthi. Alharthi. And this is the book that won the Man Booker International Prize. It was the first book to win that prize when they first started it. And I believe it's about a group of sisters in Oman. Yeah, three sisters, yeah. I believe. Yeah, looking forward yeah. to that very much. Yeah, that makes me realize I need to, I've got it up here. It's right in front of me. So I need to get started on that too. It's hard for me when I'm reading a book with other people to time it right, you know, because like I want it to be fresh in my mind for the conversation. Yeah. Because if you read it too early, then you feel like, wait, what are they talking about? <laughs> At least yeah. for me and my my brain and memory capacity it's it's just hard but then sometimes you wait too long and then you feel rushed and you don't really enjoy the reading experience as much as you could so i'm going to just do a little bit earlier than i normally do this time and see how it goes 
Yeah. And what I've been doing, I started a book journal, which I used to do all the time. And it's just where I just write down some key things about like even the characters names helps jar my memory then when people start talking about it. So I definitely plan to tab and write things down as I go also. Cool. But please join us. We would love to have people read along with us. And also just a reminder that our past read alongs all have Goodreads discussion, what do you call it, pages or threads. whatever. Yeah, threads. Thank you. Yeah. And so, you know, you can read along in quotes anytime and go back and add to the discussion or read what other people had to say about it. Yeah, absolutely. Because we get alerts when somebody posts something. So don't feel mm-hmm. like you'll be just talking into the ether. Right. You know, and, and one thing about Goodreads too, you know, depending on your settings, you can get email alerts when somebody comments on a certain thread if there's a certain book you want to follow the conversation of um, you could just get the regular alert or an email so check those out and if you have any problems just give us a shout out and we'll try and help you that's right always happy to help totally (laughs) (laughs) all right emily well last episode from your little cottage Yes, it's been a pleasure to record so many episodes from here Mm -hmm. and many more to come from other abodes. Yes, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all right, everybody. everybody. Happy Happy reading. reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.